As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found on your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. If you call out for insight, if you, if you cry, cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as sil for silver and, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads together and ask for that very insight that uh, we just read about. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our Redeemer. Father, would you please send your spirit to enable me to communicate the message of the book of Romans this morning. Would you open our hearts? Would you break through the hardness, the stubbornness, the foolishness of our hearts that we might know life, that we might know the comfort that we just spoke of, the comfort that is found in the rain, the merciful, wondrous, gracious, our irreversible, eternal rain of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, would you show up in a way that you haven't before? Move our hearts to rejoice. Move our hearts to hope. Move our hearts to love sacrificially, to love one another, to love our enemies, to welcome one another just as you have welcomed us. So, Father, please be present, for we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Do you remember from earlier in the service what Frederick Douglass said about the Bible after he became a Christian as a slave at the age of 13? My desire to learn increased, he writes, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. Let me say that again. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. And then he writes, I have gathered scattered pages of the Bible from the filthy street gutters and washed and dried them so that in moments of leisure, I mean, how much time does a 13-year-old slave have for leisure? So that in moments of leisure, I might get a word or two of wisdom from this. From them. It's amazing. Just to make, make a, a contrast with that, uh, the UNC Chapel Hill professor Bart Ehrman, a professor of early Christianity, uh, who won, at one time professed faith in Jesus and uh, later in grad school questioned his faith and walked away completely from Christianity, uh, teaches a class at, at UNC Chapel Hill called New Testament Survey. And in the class, he asks his, his uh, students three questions. The first one is, how many of you believe the Bible is, quote, the inspired word of God? And whoosh, almost all the hands fly up. This is the Bible Belt, right? This is UNC. This is North Carolina. Then he asks, how many of you have read the Harry Potter series? Whoosh, almost all the hands again go straight up. And then he asks, how many of you have read the entire Bible? A few scattered hands. And he continues, then I... Then I had to laugh for a minute and say, okay, so I'm not telling you that I think the Bible is the inspired word of God. You are telling me that you think it is, and I can see why you might want to read a book by J.K. Rowling, right? The whole series. I mean, it's, it's a good series, right? I mean, that's how many, how many, how many pages are we talking about? Five, six thousand? I don't know. I mean, something like something in that neighborhood, right? 
and he continues, Ehrman continues, but if God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to see what he had to say? So we got rolling, I mean, I'm sorry, we got, we got Frederick Douglass on the one hand, a slave at 13, going, I am dying to find out what is in the word of God. Trying to go find scraps in, in, in the gutters to find out a little, I don't know, I mean, just to figure out some, some word of wisdom or two. And we've got a bunch of students who are like, yeah, this is you know, the Bible Belt inspired word of God. It's the word of God, right? What's in it? I don't know. Where does Douglas's yearning come from? We sang it in the first song this morning. Do you remember? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... Whoa. I'm sorry, what was that? A wretch like me. I once was lost. Okay, if you're lost, when you're lost, you are dying. You're dying for counsel. You're dying for wisdom. You're just lost. I was blind. Was blind. See, only those who realize just how lost and how blind they are long for this. It's not out of piety. It's not out of just some sense of, oh, I'm reading God's word today. Maybe some people do that. But when you actually want to discover this and know it and figure it out, it's because you're desperate. You're lost. It's so amazing how he said, I love how he writes it here. Let me pull it up here. Just, I want to make sure I can get to it here if I can. In fact, Lydia might just actually get it from you. Let's see, where is this here? But he, at some point he says, I had no idea of how lost I was. Let's see here. Let's see if I can find Give me one second here. Yeah, he says... Um, He says, I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well, that I was wretched. I was wretched, right? Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And that I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. You got that? I knew I was a disaster, and I couldn't do anything about it. All, this is a 13-year-old, okay? Realizing that any sort of makeover, any sort of self-management, any sort of self-help, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And that takes us, gang, to the book of Romans. It really does. The book of Romans. That's what I'm going to do the rest of the time. I'm going to explain. I'm going to walk through... I'm going to do, I told my, my fellow pastor friends, like, I'm going to explain 11 chapters of Romans this morning. And they all laughed. And they said, well, and were, we're eager to hear this, all right? I'm, I'm eager to hear it too. But I think, I think it's going to be, I think you'll find this actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the Bible. And depending on how the next half hour goes or so, this is going to be a real boring time. But if you are lost, if you are blind, if you're wanting to grow, if you are desperate, this letter, this book of Romans, is the single most red letter in human history. It is the most significant letter in human history. It is the most studied letter in human history. Okay, so it's, the question isn't, is Romans relevant to you? The question is, are you relevant to Romans? Okay, 
It's going to blow your mind this morning. Okay, so let's just jump in here. With that, I want to just uh, jump straight in here, okay? Now, in fact, we might want to stretch first. Should we stretch? No, they don't. I, you know, get, you know, whatever. I don't know. Okay, so if I had to summarize the message of Romans in one word, it would be this. It would be hope. It would be hope. I'm not going to explain that more. You'll just come to see it. I'll prove it as we go along here. It is hope. If you were discouraged, if you were depressed, if you are down, if you are disillusioned, Romans offers a boatload of hope. And by that, by hope, I mean this, listen to this, I mean that human depravity, human wickedness, human evil, and all its shapes and forms, human depravity, human duplicity, you know, hypocrisy that we excel in the church, I'm a hypocrite, right? That, that depravity, that duplicity, that, that division that exists among humanity, all the divisions, right, among race, among ethnicity, amongst generation, amongst gender, you name it, the, all of that de- depravity, all of that duplicity, all of that division, and even death itself, as it devours, as we just come out of the holiday season that most people just come to hate, because all it reminds them of is what? The loss of loved ones, that death is just this consuming, all-encompassing all, all, all plague. It just takes us all. By hope, I mean that human depravity, human duplicity, human division, and death itself, get this, will not have the last word. That's what Romans wants to tell us this morning. That evil will not have the last word because of Jesus now, the message of Romans, in, in, in the, I want to just give you very quickly before we jump in, the message of Romans in the words of Jesus. So just if you're at Romans, turn with me to the left of the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, if you, if you have your pew Bible, it's on page 833. On page 833, again, I want to summarize the message of Romans in the words of Jesus. Just to give you a sense of, one, it's very easy to remember because Jesus' words are incredibly pithy and, and memorable. That's, what makes, that's part of what makes Jesus Jesus. And it's in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, that we have Jesus encountering a centurion. And what's important to understand, this is a Roman centurion. This is most likely a Gentile. So he's a Gentile, he's unclean, and he represents the, the, the oppressive power of Rome. Okay, this guy is not a good guy. Okay, but he comes to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus says, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll follow you and go, sure. The guy says, no, just say the word. You don't need to go. Just say the word because you have authority. And I, I understand authority because I'm a man who has authority. I've been given an authority. I say to that guy, go, and he goes. That guy comes and he comes. He says, Jesus, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus is blown away. He's astonished. He says, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. And then what I want you to hear are these words that I think summarize. This is verse, um, verse 10. No, actually, let's read verse 11 and 12. Listen to this. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that incredible? This sense of welcome. Jesus says there are going to be people coming from nowheresville. From the farthest regions of the ends of the earth, they are going to come and they're going to join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, in the, in the, in the feast of the kingdom. It's an amazing thing. That all of these nobodies, all of these losers, all of these outsiders, they're all going to come 
Isn't that amazing? It's a message of just scandalous welcome. They're all going to join us. Guys like the centurion, he's going to make it in. Can you believe it? It's a message of welcome. But listen, gang. It is also profoundly an incredibly sobering message of warning. What does the next verse say? But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Romans offers a welcome from God to those who deserve it least, to the most vile, to the most wicked, to those who have no pedigree whatsoever. And yet it tells a sobering story of how God's people in the day of Jesus and the day of Paul turned their backs on that very salvation. So it is not an either-or, it's not bad cop, good cop. It is this message of urgency that says there is welcome through the person of Jesus. And there is warning. To reject him, to walk away from him, will be the end of you. Got it? Are you with me? Jesus is amazed. Let me read those verses again. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. He's talking about the east and the west. But this is the nowheresville. Jerusalem was the center of the world. They're coming from, from the places of irrelevance, places that are unclean. These are the, these are the nations, the, the Gentiles, the unclean, the, the stupid, the, the uneducated. He will come, and where will they dine? Where are they going to sit next? Whom, whom are they going to sit next to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'll take their place right next. Hey, what's up, babe? Jake, what's going on? They will have that place of dignity, that place of welcome, that place of prominence. Verse 11, verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Romans speaks of radical grace and it speaks of radical wrath and they're both real. Okay, let's, let's jump in together. Turn to the right, Romans Romans chapter 1. Let me, I think I can do this fairly concisely. <clears throat> okay, Romans chapter 1. This is on page, uh, your pew Bible, it is on page uh, 966. Let's read these words together. This is uh, the, the first four verses. In these first four verses, Paul speaks of himself as a slave sent to celebrate God's Son as sovereign. He says, Paul, a servant, you could translate better, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, he said, I've been set apart to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God. This is good news from God. I've been set apart. I am a slave, and I've been sent to proclaim good news, to celebrate what? The gospel, and what's the gospel about? Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his, through his holy prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son. It is the gospel foretold by the scriptures regarding his son, okay? And the, and the sovereignty of his son. He goes on to explain how Jesus is the descendant of David, but is also the son of God raised in power, and he describes him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Do you see that? He describes him as one who is triumphant over death itself, sovereign over death, and reigning. He is Lord. So Paul, again, says, I'm a, I'm a, Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus, slave of Jesus, sent to celebrate God's Son as sovereign. And it's what's important to understand about this idea is that he says that Jesus is now in charge, and he does so as a representative. Again, look in verse, uh, verse 3. Regarding his Son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. And he mentions that, I believe he mentions that, because to be a Davidic descendant meant that you were a representative. You're a public figure. And in the story of Israel, what happens to the king happens to the people. Do you see that? This is very important for understanding. So whatever, however, however the, the, uh, the future of the king, whatever the destiny of the king is, the people share in that destiny. Making sense? So if the, king is, if the king wins the victory, what? The people win the victory. This is crucial because Jesus in his life isn't a private person. He's this public person so that when he acts as the son of David, those who bow their knee to him, those who are part of under his reign, under his rule, they benefit from all that he does. Is that making sense? It's sort of like, think of a basketball team. When the team wins, what? The fans win. We say, we won. Right? Oh, the Cardinals won. Oh, the Blues won. We won. Oh, we won. And we didn't do anything. We sat and watched. Right? But we share in the destiny. We share in the, the, uh, the benefits of their personal life. And so he, Jesus, Paul is saying, I am a slave sent to celebrate God's son, his representative son, as sovereign. That is to say, as in charge, as one who rules over the forces of sin and darkness and death and evil and the evil one. He reigns over them. He's resurrected, uh, uh, overcome all of those. So, he's, so Paul says, I, I'm, I'm Paul, a, a, a slave of Jesus, sent to celebrate God's sovereign reign. And listen to this, to summon all to surrender to him. Verse 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And he looks at the Romans and says, and you also are called to, um, you all, and you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Got that? He's saying you are being called to belong to him. This, and this is, it goes back to our Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? To have your own independence? To be independent, do your own thing? Live life the way you want to live life? It's the most comforting thing, right? Have enough money to secure for yourself a life where you can have a picket fence. That's comforting. No, it's not. You know why? Because death, disease, all minor of things, economic disaster, it can just mow, mow you over in a moment. So you can go off and live your life of independence. It's not going to be independent. Someone's going to rule over you. Someone's going to have its way with you. Your, your hope in life is not to be independent. Your hope in life is to surrender under the one who reigns over all the forces of darkness. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. Paul is saying, I'm here to celebrate the sovereignty of God's Son and to call you to surrender to his goodness, his glory, his mercy. Okay, now with that in mind, the next step here, we're going to fast forward here to verse 16 and 17. 
Because it's here that we see that Paul really begins his argument. <clears throat> here we see in verses 16 and 17 that Paul celebrates God's salvation. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Now don't miss how, how just simple but profound this idea is. The notion of salvation, of rescue, of deliverance, Paul says, will not come from government. It will not come from some guru. It will not come from your own, you know, just get up and get going. It will come from God and God alone. Do you believe that? Do you look at those of you who are disillusioned with yourself, disillusioned with others? Right? How many of you spend so much time trying to change other people? Trying to change your spouse? Right? Thank you, Walt. Right? Trying to change yourself. And you get so frustrated, so angry. In fact, especially on my temperament, I love to help people. I love to, like, you know, care for people. I want to even be their savior. To deliver them. Right? It's really arrogant. It's really it's twisted. It's really, you know, sad. And guess what? I get frustrated people. You know why? Because they won't get saved. <laughs> they, won't, I, they won't let me help them. Why won't they let me help them? Don't they know what's best for them? And all along it says what? You can't save them. You can't. The government can't save them. Higher education can't save them. There's only one salvation. And Paul's message is so radical that way. I mean, you want to talk about cynicism. You got it right here in Romans. He's like, no one can save themselves. You ever heard people say, yeah, you can't change, you know, you can't change other people. Yeah, that's for sure. Right? And so it's this radical message that who saves? God saves. Okay? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Okay? And one of the things, the most important thing we do as leadership is every Saturday morning we gather on the phone, conference call, and we do what? We pray. Why? Because Jesus said, with man this is impossible. What if you got up every morning this week and said, you know what? To be a mom, to be a wife, to be a parent, to be whatever, it's impossible. What I am trying to do in living this Christian life, it's impossible. Instead of going, oh, this is so hard. You're like, no, it's not hard. It's impossible. You ask my wife, ask my kids, I complain all the time as a minister, but man, this stupid job, so hard. It's like, no, it's worse. It's impossible. Okay, so it's a message, it's a, it is a, it's Baal is not ashamed that the gospel also speaks of the power of God that brings salvation. So first, Paul celebrates God's salvation. Listen to this, but Paul celebrates God's salvation for any soul. This is where things get really scandalous. Look at what he says here in the, the, the remaining verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, what? That brings salvation to everyone who believes. You could translate it better, to anyone who believes. And then he qualifies this first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And there's a reason for that because there's a promised salvation. This is not just out of the blue. God has actually promised Israel that he would one day save them. So it is for God's people, but it's not just for God's people. It is for everyone. First for the Jew, 
primarily or preeminently in the, in the story of salvation is first for the Jew, but it is also for the Gentile, also for the unclean, also for the outsider. So listen to this. It is, a, it is God's salvation, and it's a salvation for any soul. Come back to that. Now listen, what's so important to understand here that Paul makes a massive, uh, if you will, rabbit trail in the verses that follow. He says, you know, the question we have to ask is salvation from what? Right? Romans, it's about God's salvation. God's salvation for any soul, great, but salvation from what? From whom? What's going on? Because all of us know deep down that the world isn't how it's supposed to be. We watch the news and you see all the devastation, all the depravity, all the corruption, all the division, all the polarization. Does it make you angry? Sometimes you just get angry. You look at all you go, oh, you're so frustrated. There's so much injustice. There's so much wrong. There's so much just messed up and you get angry and you can't stop getting angry. And then you get depressed. Because what are you going to do about it? And what's even more frustrating is you may have friends, people you know, you're like, isn't this terrible? Isn't this awful? And they're like, and, you're, and now you're angry at them because they don't get it. They don't care like you care. And why don't they care? Why aren't they angry? Because they don't care. You're angry, you're mad. Why are you mad? Why are you angry? Because you care, right? Do you know who's angry as well? God is. He says it in verse 18. Look there. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Do you see this? The present, not some future thing. That right now, God's anger, he is angry with the world. You know why he's angry? Because he's angry for the same reason that you're angry. Because you care. See, apathy is the opposite of love, right? Anger is not the opposite of love. One of the hardest things about being a minister, I'm just going to lay it out there, is to see the apathy of God's people. I love it when you disagree with me. I love it when you, dis, you, know, you, you come up to me and say, I don't agree with you, or I, don't, I think this is wrong, because you're, you're animated. You're actually coming and we're talking. So I'll be in disagreement with you all day long. I have no problem with that. I'll sleep easy. You know, we don't, we're not on the same page. But at least you what? You came to me. You're animated. Why, and why are you talking to me? Why are you upset? Because you care. But when people come in on a Sunday after Sunday, and they're just there, and you're, whatever. It's the apathy God is not apathetic to the injustice of this world. He is actively engaged in his wrath. That's what verse 18 says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now this is amazing. He's saying that God is actually angry and the anger is the right response to injustice. And he speaks of that. And so what the salvation is, you said, okay, Romans is about God. It's about God saving, God's salvation. And it's salvation for everyone but it's salvation from, are you ready for this? It's salvation from God's own wrath. Because God deserves to be angry. He is rightly angry. Just like you and I when we get on, on the news and we see how much is wrong. And we should be moved to anger. Except the difference between your anger and God's anger is that he can do it in a perfect way. A just way that isn't reactionary, that isn't biased. And what's so amazing here, I want you to see God's anger here in chapters 1, two, uh, chapters, uh, one and 2 here. There are three categories of persons that he describes here. The first one is the partier. I'm going to call it the partier. 
Romans 8, 1, sorry, Romans 1, 18 through 32 speaks of a certain type of person who lives their life according to their passions and desires. They just live their life freely. This is most Americans today. We do what we want to do. Human choice is elevated as supreme, and that's what it's all about. And listen, what is the nature of God's wrath on the partiers? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. You got that? What did God do? He just gave them over. You do what you want. Right? Look at verse uh, 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. You hear that word? Giving over. Give them over to shameful lust. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, so God what? Gave them over. A threefold giving over. Parents, what's the best way to destroy your children? Let them do whatever they want. You give your children whatever they want, and you know you're going to destroy them. God very fairly says, listen, you don't want to honor me. You don't want to acknowledge my wisdom. You don't want to acknowledge my authority. Partiers, you go for it. What could be more fair? See, God's salvation is from God's wrath, a wrath that is, what, letting us do what we want. Listen, American culture today celebrates one thing. It it proclaims, it, it delights in one thing. Do what you want. Do what you want. So the first one's the partier. God's wrath is out there against the partier. The second one is the finger pointer. Now look, if you look here, if you were to read through 18 through 32, you would see that there's a third person. This is all talked about in the third person. This is very deliberate on Paul's part. He said, you know, those people, those partiers out there, those people, they're so bad. And guess what he does in verse, chapter 2, verse 1? You. <laughs> now you. Right? You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. Got that? For you who, for, uh, excuse me, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. So the first, first person that, that, God, that, that, that God's wrath is being poured out is against the party here. The second one is the finger pointer. The first one is a guy who lives according to their cravings. That's what you do. You live according to your cravings. The second person lives according to criticism. He's the critic. Right? He's the person who looks around and goes, man, people are so messed up. Man, people just don't get it. They're constantly criticizing. And Paul's critique is, you know what? You think you're different, but you're not. At the end of the day, you do most all of the same things. You may do it in a different way, different shape or form, but you're just as guilty. The first person as a partier, the one who gives into their cravings, looks at God's authority and just, yeah, forget about it. The second person... The finger pointer, the critic, looks at, not at God's authority, looks at God's mercy and says, you know what, I don't need it. I don't need it. Look at this. Look at verse, um, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, for forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So the critic is the person who just doesn't really need God. Everyone else needs God's mercy, but not him. And God's saying, that's hypocritical. 
Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. So the first one is the partier. The second one is the, uh, the, 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 the finger pointer. And the third one is the pretender. Partier, finger pointer, pretender. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then he goes and critiques circumcision. Just because you're circumcised, what does that even mean? Okay, a ritual, a rite. See, the first, the partier, relies on his own reason. This is so important. The partier relies on his own reason. Look back at verse, um, uh, verse 23. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor as, as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking gave him food to all, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, I'm sorry, 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See, this first section, the party, it's basically your basic teenager. Because the humans are all, in one shape or form, they're like teenagers. They think they know what's best. The, the partier relies on his own, I got this figured out, I know what's going on. He relies on his own reason. Claiming to be wise, they became a fool. The second person here, the, the, the finger pointer, relies on his own rightness. He doesn't need God's mercy because he's right. Look how right I am. And the third person, the one who's the, the pretender, relies on ritual. He looks at circumcision. He goes, man, I'm circumcised. I'm good. I go to church every Sunday. I'm baptized. I'm good. And God looks at all three and says, no one's better. All of you are deserving of God's wrath. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. This is Paul's summary verse here where he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have, do we Jews have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Do you hear what Paul's critique is? He's saying, listen, sin has mastered you. You're not going to escape. You will never get better. Right? All the regret in the world, all of the self-management in the world, it's not going to work. Right? You will find yourself back where you began. To win the words of Proverbs, listen to this. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Paul says we're all under the power of sin, and therefore we all need salvation. So you got that, God? So Romans celebrates God's salvation for any soul. For the, for the, for the, for the partier, right? for the finger pointer, and for the pretender. Any of them. That is the same you say it this way. Paul celebrates God's salvation for any soul from any kind of skin, I'm sorry, from any kind of sin and with any color, of, uh, any color of skin. Let me say that again. I said that wrong. God celebrates, God, Paul celebrates God's salvation for any soul with any kind of sin and with any color of skin. 
The Jews thought of themselves as, I mean Jews, many of the Jews thought of themselves as better in Paul's day, as superior, as not like those people. And, people is, and, and Paul says, no, so that God's salvation is available to everyone. Well, how is it available? We saw the summary in verse, chapter, Romans 3, verse 9. Look at verse 21. Paul restates what he said, what he said already in 1, 116 and 17. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This save the saving salvation, this promised salvation, it's called righteousness here. This promised salvation has been made known, it's been made evident, it's been made clear. How? Verse 22: This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now listen, I'm going to pull a little fast one on you a little bit here. In verse 22, if you look in your Pew Bible, it says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now if you look down, there's an H there, and look on verse 22 in the footnote of your Bible. It says, or through the faithfulness of. Do you see that there? So this is the NIV. The righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is to say, through the obedience of Jesus Christ. It doesn't really matter how you translate it. The idea is the same. He goes on to expand on, on, on the idea. He says here, therefore, I'm sorry, there is, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Do you see that? There's, there's the partier, whether he's a finger pointer, the pretender. There's no difference. They're all under the power of sin. They're, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all, and listen, all of them are able to be justified freely by his grace. How? So we've, we've said so far that God is God who must save, not anyone else. We said that God's salvation is available to any soul of any kind, the party or the finger pointer, the pretender. But how? how, how through whom? What's the agent? What is the means by, God, by which God is saving us from his wrath? And the answer is right here. Verse 25. The redemption that comes through Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, literally as a mercy seat, as, as roots in the Old Testament cult and the, the tabernacle and temple. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So it is through God's redirection of his wrath upon his own son. Who does that? Listen, as Romans will say later, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How many of you would be willing to do that? Say, here's my kid. Take him. The injustice, right? We sang uh, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God. It just so beautifully captures just the, the nature of how he is the one who gives his life for the very ones who are accusing him. Right? He stood there from the cross saying, What Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is one who lays down his life in love. The one, the one perfect person who actually obeys his entire life, at the very end of it, is, it, it turns around on him so that he's treated as if what? He's done everything wrong. There was no one, there's no one, listen, there is no one who was treated more unfairly than Jesus. So Paul celebrates God's salvation, a salvation from deserved wrath for any soul. God's salvation is for any soul, and it is seen, it is evidence, it is made manifest through Jesus' sacrifice. God's salvation for any soul 
is seen through Jesus' sacrifice, through his not sparing his own son. And then the result of that that Paul immediately goes to in Romans 3 is that this squashes any stance of superiority. Look there in, in, in verse 27. Where then is boasting? Chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Why? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, but because of the law that requires faith. He's saying there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. None of us have any room for boasting whatsoever. And that's so important in a world today divided. We look at liberals and conservatives. We just think everyone's dumber than we are. We're so divided. And Paul's saying there's no room for boasting. You have nothing to boast about. Salvation from first to last is through Jesus Christ. So God's salvation is for any soul through Jesus' sacrifice, squashing any idea of superiority. And he goes and he proves that in Romans 4, where he says, let's go back to the start and show that even Abraham, the guy who started it all, he didn't have anything to boast about either. And then in chapter 5 and 6, we see how this grace is sovereign. Paul says here, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And at the very end of of chapter 5, he gives this summary statement about the sovereignty of God's grace. Verse 21, So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign, uh, reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying God's salvation for, for every soul, for any kind of soul, is through Jesus' sacrifice, and it removes us out from the curse of the law and into a place of sovereign grace. And that grace is given, why? That sacrifice is made, why? So that we might serve. Look in chapter 6, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your moral body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Why did God save us? Why did Jesus sacrifice for us? So that we might offer ourselves in service Spirit-enabled service to him. Look in chapter 8 where we see this, the Spirit at work here. He says in chapter 8, verse, uh, verse uh, 5, those who, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So he speaks here of the pivotal role of the, of the work of the Spirit to enable us to serve. So again, why does God... Uh, so God's, God's salvation is for any soul through the Jesus' sacrifice. Why? For Spirit-enabled service as his sons and daughters. Let me just conclude here. I'm not going to take the time, but in chapters 9 through 11, Paul stops and says, as amazing as the salvation is for any soul, through the sacrifice of Jesus, as amazing as it is, the the bitter, tragic reality is that so many of Paul's uh, 
fellow countrymen, their fellow Jews, did not receive it. And Paul was right there, right? If you know the story of Paul, he was the greatest critic of Jesus. He persecuted Christians. He was the last person on the planet you would ever think to actually proclaim the message of the gospel. And Paul wrestles with that in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 and says that God's people stumbled over God's Son. He speaks of how they, uh, how they just refused to admit their weakness, to admit their sin, and didn't want to follow him. So again, let me just close with summary. You've been patient with me. I appreciate it. But this is so important. Romans chapters 1 through 11 celebrates God's salvation. His salvation from him. He alone can bring it. And it is available to any soul. Those who struggle with any kind of sin, those with any color of skin, and that salvation comes through Jesus' sacrifice, squelching any statement or any stance of superiority and securing us in grace for service as his sons and daughters.